from this song, Thy mercy seat is open still, here let my soul retreat. What a, what a wonderful imagery. You, you went to the mercy seat to receive mercy and grace. What a picture. That's what we're doing here this morning. We have come to receive mercy and grace from our and um, man, I hope I hope you're refreshed by worship. I, I really do. I, you know, I told our elders, and um, I said, or, or at least we had our staff meeting, and I said, look, if worship is not a joy and a refreshment to you, do whatever you can to make sure it is. I, I don't care what it is. Make sure that it is. It, worship is like the stimulus package my soul needs. Seriously. Seriously, my soul is empty at the end of every week, and I truly look forward to worship. Even if I wasn't the pastor, I'd be here. I might not go to two services, but I would definitely be here. I can tell you that. I would be here, and I would be worshiping. So I hope, I hope that is the case. All right, take your, take your Bibles now and turn to James, James chapter 1. We're, we're going to get out of James chapter 1 at some point. Uh, you know, I told uh, I told the men um, at the uh, the Amos study that every time I open the Bible now, I don't know if it's because I'm getting older. I found three extra gray hairs, but but every time I open my Bible, man, I see grace. I see Jesus. It's just it doesn't matter what it is. I could be reading like. The Toledotes, right? I could be reading the names, and I'm like, oh, oh, I remember this person. This person's in the life of, of Christ. This person is, is in the genealogy of Christ. And I go there, and I kind of nerd out because the gospel is amazing. It's wonderful. It's sweet. And I hope when you read your Bible, you see Jesus everywhere. I hope when you hear preaching of the word or listen to a song or prayer or whatever, you see him everywhere because the Bible says he is everywhere. Everywhere inside here, as he's on the road to, the, to Emmaus, he tells them that. He tells the Pharisees that everywhere he is here. And I hope you see him um, as well. All right. Enough of the pre-sermon. James chapter 1, verse 19 through 20. If you remember, we've talked about spiritual maturity. Um, in, in the first sermon, from James chapter 1 to verse number 11, and then... From James chapter 1, 12, down to verse number 18, we talked about some of the challenges of spiritual maturity, how trials are necessary for spiritual maturity, but in the midst of every trial, there's always temptation. And so the people of God need to be mindful of that. But, but it shouldn't crush us because God is gracious to his people. God is gracious to his people. So now, here now, uh, James's exhortation about fruitfulness in the word. It says here, know this, beginning at verse number 19, know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, so to speak, slow to anger, for the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in the mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, 
and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts. He will be blessed in his doing. If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives the heart, deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. All flesh is as grass, and the glory of man as the flower of grass. The grass will wither, and the flower will fade, but the word of the Lord shall endure forever. And this is the word that will be preached unto you. Amen and amen. Well, let's pray. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, thank you so much that you've given us your perfect law of liberty. Thank you for the refreshment of your word. Thank you for worship, the prayers, the singing, the fellowship. All of these things are a blessing to our soul. May we covet it. May we desire it. May we be filled by it. May it give us joy. Bless your people now. Holy Spirit, come. Has already been prayed. May they not hear me but may they hear you as you reveal Jesus. In his name we pray, amen and amen. Well, we've come to the part of the book of James in which James uh, stopped preaching and he's about to start meddling. He's about to start meddling in your life. Because in the book of James, he's going to start talking He's going to start talking about issues of justice. He's going to start talking about issues of racism. The sin of partiality is how he calls it. He's going to be talking about taming your tongue and worldliness. I mean, he is just going to get into the nitty gritty. Because there's all sorts of imperatives that James is going to put before us of things to do of things we need to change, of, of how we need to change our mindset and live in a godly way. And the temptation of seeing all of these imperatives is we get crushed. We look at it and we say, how, how are we supposed to do all these things? How are we supposed to tame our tongues? And, and how are we supposed to change our lives? How, how, how are we going to do all of this? And so as we meet all of these imperatives, on you that James starts off by telling us about the glorious indicative. And it's right there in verse number 18. Who are we in Christ? Who are we, who we are in Christ uh, set do and the imperatives. James says, on his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we might be a kind of first fruit his creatures. Who are you in Christ? You are the first fruits. If you read the Old Testament, the first fruit was that first group of crops you would bring before the Lord, and it was completely given over to the Lord. In our day, the first fruit would be, imagine if you took your first paycheck of the year and just gave it to God. That was the first fruits. You might say, well, pastor, didn't they need to eat? Of course, of course, but God provided for them. And so the first fruit is this wonderful picture of giving yourself over completely to the Lord. And in this context, what is James saying? You and I are given over to the Lord. 
We are in union with Christ. That's who we are. And because we're in union with Christ, Romans 5, 1 is, is for us as God's people. Having been justified by faith, we have what with Christ? Peace. Peace with God. Romans 8, 1 says, there's therefore now no condemnation to them who are in Christ Jesus. That's who you are. There's no condemnation. And so when we read these imperatives, we don't come here feeling burdened. We should feel liberated because we know these things aren't designed to beat us down. We have peace with God. We know that these things aren't designed to condemn us because there's no condemnation in Christ. And so I encourage you, as we go through the rest of the book, please don't allow these imperatives to weigh you down. No, they should do the exact opposite. Remember, the law of God, the commands of God are designed to point us to good works that God has already prepared for us that we might walk in them. These things are a blessing to our soul, not a curse. So again, as we go through these, you might be like, man, these are a lot of things that we have to do. I agree with you. Isn't it glorious we get to do everything the Bible tells us to do because we're in Christ? Yes, of course it is. Of course it is. Now, having given that public service announcement, let's look at what James is telling us about today. James is calling us in this passage, verse 1, verse 19, down through verse 27. James is calling us to live a life that's shaped by God's word. And a life actually produces it produces something. There are two things I want to point out that a life shaped by God's word, a life, a life that, that produces biblical spirituality produces two things. First of all, the word-shaped life, the word shapes your life, it produces radical faith. Notice with me in verse number 19 and 20 and down to 21. James says this, know this, my beloved brothers, let everyone or let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to wrath, for the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save. Where's the radical faith? you might be asking, that James says the word of God produces. Notice with me in the first two verses, Jesus, uh, James has instructed them to be slow to speak, quick to hear, slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Why is it that James connects anger with spiritual fruitfulness and radical faith? Here's why. In James' day, much like our day, there was rampant rebellion. There was rampant insurrection. There was rampant uprising. In fact, if you study the, the times that James lived in, it's remarkably similar to our time today. There was an ethos. There was a climate of anger and frustration against every aspect of the government. You had the slave, uh, the, the people that were in slavery, constantly rising up and rebelling against their masters. You had insurrectionists like, people, like the zealots and Barabbas that we uh, saw at the end of Jesus' life. These people were constantly fighting against uh, the government. 
situation. And so anger and frustration permeated every aspect of their society, much like it does our society today. Look at what happened to Wednesdays ago. And James is looking at them, and James is saying, even though you're a Christian, even though you've been, you're the first fruits of Jesus Christ, even though all these things are true of you, you live in a culture, you see a culture that's always angry, that's always in frustration, there's always rebellion. And James says, you are impacted by that ethos. Don't you realize that? We are impacted by the age we live in. All the anger and frustration in our day, we soak that up as well as Christians. And James is looking at his people. He's writing to them and he's saying, look, you live in an age characterized by anger. That's how, you, that's how anything could get done. If they wanted to do anything in government, there was an uprising. There was anger and frustration. You, you, you live that out in your life. And James is saying, that should not be a Christian. We never act out in anger. And the same thing, the same message James is giving his people is the same message he's giving us. Christian, don't you realize you live in an age that's characterized by anger and frustration? Don't be caught up in that. We're not people of anger. We're people of love. We should never be angry at anyone. And so James confronts the nature of our heart right now by saying you're called to something different. Remember in the book of Acts, Acts chapter 11, there was a group of Christians that went into Antioch. And Antioch was a political hotbed of division. I mean, you had the Essenes, you had the Herodians, right? You had the Zealots. And they were constantly fighting and arguing with each other. But a group of people came in that was different. Their different. Their actions were different. And the people that lived in Antioch were so confused. Like, who are these people? And the more they watched them and watched what they say and watched what they did, they said, oh, they resembled that guy that died on the cross. Didn't they call him Christ? And so as a word of derision, they began to call them what? Christians. Because they didn't act like the Herodians who followed Herod. And they didn't, lie, they didn't speak like the Essenes who were always trying to overthrow the government. And they were different. They were different from the zealots who were religious uh, purists. They were completely different. Their words were seasoned with salt. And they were grace-filled people. But they weren't pacifists. The Bible says if you read Acts 11, they went out and they spoke the word of God boldly. Boldly and powerfully. And they began to have converts. And Antioch changed as a result of these people. They were called Christians. And beloved, that's how we should be. And James is saying that's what we're called to be. Now, some of you are saying, well, Pastor Dennis, the anger of God doesn't work, the, the, the anger of man doesn't work, the righteousness of God. Wasn't Jesus angry? Well, yes. In fact, in Mark 3, 5, it seems that Jesus was angry at the Pharisees. 
So what do we make of Jesus' anger? B.B. Warfield, who, um, who's a New Testament scholar, he lived in the late 19th century, early 20th century. He wrote a book called The Emotional Life of Jesus. We, we looked at that book, and we had a series on uh, some of those things right at the beginning of the pandemic. And in it, he has, the most, he has the most wonderful explanation of how Jesus' anger models our anger. And he gives four things. He, here's what they are. First of all, B.B. Warfield says that Jesus' anger is always the result of emotional grief and emotional pain over the hard-heartedness of others. Even in this example in Mark 3, Jesus was deeply pained. His heart was hurt at seeing the Pharisees be so, so unconcerned about the man with the withered hand. Using him as a pawn to trap Jesus. And Jesus is so broken over that. So the first thing he says, our anger should always be towards the deep unrighteousness that we see. But second thing he says is that Jesus' anger was fleeting. Jesus didn't stay angry. It wasn't like Jesus lived in perpetual anger towards the Pharisees. Far from it. It was a fleeting moment. So if you're, if you're a person that justifies righteous anger, I hope it's fleeting. I hope it just lasts for a moment. But the third thing he says is that Jesus' anger was internalized. He never acted out of anger. And then the fourth thing B.B. Warfield says is that when Jesus did act, he was merciful. And it was done out of love and tenderness and care. That's the difference. In fact, if you look at the Bible, Jesus vehemently opposes anger. When he was in the Garden of Gethsemane, or or the garden somewhere near there, and he was about to be taken into custody, Peter took out a sword, and what did Peter do? He chopped off somebody's ear. And Jesus went up to him and says, hold on. Peter, put away your sword. What are you doing? They that live by the sword will die by the sword. Don't you know I can call 10,000 or 12 legions of angels to protect me? And it's such a beautiful picture of Christ and what he's calling us to do, to not use anger. Here's what he's telling Peter. He says, Peter, I don't need your temper tantrum and your sword. Don't you understand that I can call not just, not just 12 legions of angels, I could call a Googleplex of angels. I can call so many angels that the very atoms in this space would evaporate. So, so your anger, your temper tantrum, and your sword is meaningless in accomplishing the righteousness of God. And by the way, Peter had a right to be angry. An injustice was was about to take place. His anger was justified. But Jesus is saying his temper tantrum and his sword can never be enough to what he can do and what God was trying to do. Jesus didn't need his anger and his sword. Jesus needed his faith. That's what Jesus needed. He needed him to exercise faith. By the way, how many times did Jesus tell him he was going to die on a cross? Three times. 
at least. Jesus didn't need him to get angry. He needed his faith. Now, you might be like, oh, pastor, that's what can faith do? Look, if you need a Bible study, go through the Bible and look at all the times the Bible tells us what faith does. You'll be shocked. Faith moves mountains. Faith changes the heart of a sinner, an unrighteous person, and makes them righteous. Faith has the power to change entire cities. The Bible says faith made the sun stop in the air. Over and over. I mean, you can just look at this reams and reams in the word of God about what faith is able to do. So faith isn't just something that's accidental to the Christian life. It's core to the Christian life. And that's what Jesus was saying. Faith is the foundation of action. Faith isn't opposed to action. And far too many in our day think exercising faith is passive and weak. Passive and weak? Are you kidding me? Read church history. The the early Christians hated the practice of gladiatorial um, wars and so forth. And they, they called them bloodbaths. And for years, the church prayed and asked the Lord to stop this evil practice of of gladiatorial events and murder for sport. And and the Christians finally came to a point where they had just had enough and they prayed, God, give us the wisdom to know what to do. And a man by the name of Telemachus one day threw himself into the gladiatorial ring and placed himself in between the two combatants and begged them to stop. And he was killed. And many more started following suit to the point where they couldn't hold the gladiatorial events anymore. And praise God, they eventually stopped it. Now tell me, is that weak faith? Is that passive faith? Far from it. It was faith that led to powerful That wasn't a temper tantrum. That was him acting out of love for others. And beloved, we as God's people need to pray for wisdom. God doesn't need your anger. He needs your faith. He needs you to pray boldly. And he needs you to act boldly when the time comes. And believe it or not, the time will come. You'll get your shot to act boldly. But we must prepare our hearts now by faith. And so how do we get faith? Well, the Bible tells us, which leads us to our second point, the word-shaped life produces living. He says, how do we get faith? Instead of anger, How do we allow faith to to work the righteousness of God? He says, first of all, you need to put off filthiness and rampant anger and receive with meekness the implanted word of God. What causes filthiness and rampant wickedness? Pride. What causes anger? Pride. What's the anecdote to pride? To receive with meekness the word of God. That's what James is saying here. 
That if we want to, if you want a word-shaped life, you need to learn to lay aside your pride and receive with meekness the engrafted word of God. Lay aside filthiness, rampant wickedness, and anger. Those things are, are the result of a prideful heart. And instead, come with meekness to the word of God. That's what James got. And James is saying here, and this is a beautiful thing that James does. It's almost like James grew up in the South. Because he says, look, don't just come to church and hear what God has to say. Yeah, you hear a good sermon. But James says, you got to do what you hear. That's what he says in verse number 22. But be doers of the word and not hearers only deceiving himself. And he gives a wonderful example. He says, don't be like the person that looks in the mirror, sees himself, and then walks away and forgets who he is. He, here's what James is saying. I am sure that, uh, yeah, as I look at all of you, I can tell you looked in the mirror this morning. Right? And as you looked in the mirror, what did you see? You saw some imperfections. Your hair was slightly out of order. You might have had crusties in your eyes. Might have something in your teeth or something on your clothes. But as you looked in the mirror, what began to happen? Did you just walk away and say, oh, okay. By the way, have you ever tried to get dressed without a mirror? It doesn't end well. But what James is saying here is, it is foolish for you to look into a mirror, see all your imperfections, see all the things you need to do to look beautiful, and then just walk away and do nothing about it. No one in this room looks in the mirror when they're getting ready to go out somewhere, sees their imperfections and say, okay, and just walk away. Nobody does that. Well, this is what James is saying. When you are confronted by the word of God, when the word of God shows you how you should live, why do you walk away and do nothing? That's foolish. Don't you want your life to be fruitful? It can only be fruitful when you look into the perfect law of liberty. See what the perfect law of liberty is reflecting to you and do those things. We do those things. And beloved, as we look into the perfect law of liberty, what happens? James says, look, we begin to bridle our tongue. Verse 26. We begin to have a, a religion that's pure and undefiled. We visit the widows and the orphans. And we keep ourselves unstained from the world. That's what happens when we look into the perfect law of liberty and desire change. Now, I want to circle back as I end to something I said in the beginning. I promise you, the more you look into the perfect law of liberty, the more you look in God's word, you begin to see all sorts of imperfections. You begin to see all sorts of things God wants you to change because it's a mirror. You begin to see your failings where you don't measure up. And sometimes you see so many things that, number one, it, there's too many to fix. And then you're asking yourself the question, how can I even begin to fix it? Real quick, here's how. The mirror in this illustration that James gives not only shows you what to do, 
but the mirror helps you to do it. Does anybody, does anybody in this room have a mirror that helps them to get ready beyond just showing them their imperfections? Of course not. But that's the beauty of the implanted word of God. It not only shows you them, it gives you the power to do it. How does it give us the power to do it, Pastor Dennis? There's only one person I know that has ever kept the law perfectly. And the name is Jesus. He looked into the perfect law of liberty. And he did everything that it required him to do. And by virtue of him doing that and dying on the cross for us, and by virtue of us coming to him through grace by faith, we too one day will be presented faultless before the throne of grace. We too have the same power to look into the law of liberty by virtue of our, our union and communion with him and see real change and be able to do what it says with joy and not as a burden. Beloved, please do not throw off looking into this law of liberty because as the scripture says, it brings life to the soul. Look into it. It will reveal things that you might need to change. It will reveal thought patterns and habits. But please, please, please do not fear and do not look away. Lean in. Lean in. Let's go to our Lord in prayer. Father, I hope. Oh, God, thank you so much for your perfect law of liberty. Thank you that you bring healing and joy to your people as we look in because Christ gives us the ability to do the law. But even when we fail, we have the righteousness of Christ and one day we will be presented faultless before the throne of grace. Bless your people now in Jesus' name. Amen and amen.